rates. Have y'all ever noticed that no matter how many years you might be out of school, uh, you never really stop being tested? Have you noticed that? That even if it's been decades since you crammed for the SAT, every time you go to the DMV, you kind of worry, man, I hope they don't make me tell them what that you know yellow triangle sign means. Uh, because maybe it means railroad, maybe it means do not pass, maybe it means school crossing. Uh, even in work, man, your boss will call you into the office and say, we need to talk about uh, your annual performance review. We just never stop being tested, do we? We're always being, seems like, graded, wondering if we measure up, wondering if we are really doing enough, wondering if we are where we're supposed to be. I can still remember as a kid in, I don't know, second, third, fourth grade, doing something called the President's Physical Fitness Exam. And if y'all remember doing that, they would take us into the gym, and evidently, the President of the United States, it was a matter of just supreme national security, how many push-ups or pull-ups I could do. And... The nation wanted to know if I could climb the rope in the gym. And I never could. I never never was able to do it. Still hadn't made it to the top of that rope. So I'm sorry, America, but I let you down. But far and away from me, the most memorable test of my life came in my third year of Bible college. Uh, one Monday morning, I, I walked into Phil Chapman's class. And Phil Chapman was my, my professor for this class. And just to tell you about Brother Phil, Brother Phil was just a, a North Carolina mountain preacher, all right? Some of y'all know what I mean when I say that. Some of you may not. But Brother Phil was a hacker. Y'all know what I mean when I say a preacher was a hacker? And when we would go into class, Brother Phil did not treat us as if, you know, we were students that he was lecturing to. He treated us like we were convicts on death row that he was preaching to. And here's, here's no joke how his class would go. He would say, I want you to take your textbook and turn to page 14. And boys, today we're going to go over the reading. Every, every week for an hour and a half. I got saved six times in his class. But every week it was like that. But what he would do every, every single Monday, we would go into his class and he would give us a signed reading. At the end of the class, he would say, read chapters 2 and 3 or whatever. And the next week, we would come in and have a test on what we read before he had even taught us about it. That's what he did. Well, one particular Monday morning, we came into class, and Brother Phil put a piece of paper for our pop quiz. He put a piece of paper on our desk, and I had one question on it. And the question was this. This was the test. One question. True or false? I did my reading for the week. And now you've got a glimmer. Do I tell the truth and possibly get a zero and get a bad grade, even though I'm being honest? Or do you lie as a student in Bible college and take the 100 even if you didn't do all the reading? Now, I know some of you were wondering I had done my reading because the guys who had had the class before told me he was going to do this. But that moment when he put that test in front of us, that test was designed to show us something about ourselves, right? It was designed to show us that maybe we have a problem with integrity or laziness. But that test also showed us something about him. It showed us that he believed for men aspiring to pastoral ministry that honesty mattered. Maybe mattered more than getting a good grade on a test or in a class. And sometimes as we go through life, we feel like we are being tested by the Lord. Because we are being tested by the Lord. And those tests many times can feel exactly like that piece of paper. Those tests are revealing a lot about us, but they're also revealing a lot about Him. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Exodus 
where the people of God have to take this kind of test. And it's so important because some of you today feel just like your life is one pop quiz after another. That you are constantly having to prove your faith by living in such a way that you trust God. And you're wondering maybe, why is it so hard following Jesus? This is not what I expected. Why does it seem like there's one difficulty after another? And maybe you haven't even realized that the frustrations you're facing in life really are a lot like tests. And so because your expectations are unmet and because you're dealing with so much disappointment in the details of your life, you have actually put God to the test. And in your heart, you are trying right now to give God a grade to say, you know, maybe he's really not doing as good of a job taking care of me as I'd like. Today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where God does put his people to the test. But in that test, he's not just proving who they are, but he's also proving who he is. We're going to begin reading today in Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 22. Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 22. I want you to turn there with me in the Bible if you would. And we're going to stand as we read these verses of Scripture. We're just going to read a handful of verses to the end of Exodus 15. And then we are going to carry the story on through to chapter 16 and chapter 17. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. The Bible says, Then Moses and Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mar, they could not drink the water of Mar because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mar. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water, seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Thank you. You can be seated. And I believe God is going to speak to us from this story today. Now, when you get to this kind of middle section of the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have finally come out of slavery in Egypt, and they are now traveling. They are journeying on their way to the land that God has promised to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can see that reading through this text verse number 22, you can see it in verse number 1 of chapter 16, verse number 1 of chapter 17, that they are moving on their way from place to place. They have experienced the most incredible, supernatural, miraculous salvation from the hand of God that reached out and rescued them from their slavery. But now they're just settling in to what it means to actually walk with the Lord. And as he takes this group of slaves and forms them into a new nation who no longer build their identity on their slavery, but on their relationship to God. Like any other group of people, like any other culture or nation, they have to answer some very, very basic, very important life or death questions. Such as, how are our needs going to be provided for? That's a pretty big question. How are we going to feed our kids? Who is going to lead us? Who's going to make decisions on our behalf? Every people group has to answer that question. Who is going to fight our battles for us? And as the unique people of God, there was a very direct, very simple, one-word answer to every one of those questions. God is the one who would provide for them. God is the one who would direct them. God is the one who would fight their battles on their behalf. That was the point. And all of that trusting God stuff is fine and good until you actually have to do it, right? And now, in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, 
the people of Israel actually have to not just talk about it, but they have to live through it. And as they live through these experiences where God is building their faith, the Bible talks about them in terms of testing. What I want to do today is I want to talk about three tests that the children of Israel go through. One in chapter 15, one in chapter 16, one in chapter 17. And I want to show you how in each of these tests, God not only shows something about their hearts and their faith and our hearts and our faith, but He also reveals something about His heart and His faithfulness to us. So let's look at these tests today, and we're going to give them to you in the form of true or false questions. I hope you all remember how those work. So here's the first one. True or false, God can be trusted. True or false, God can be trusted. In Exodus chapter 15, this chapter begins uh, as a song of praise. The people of Israel have come through the Red Sea on dry ground and they stand on the other side of sweet deliverance and they stand singing victory in Jesus, worshiping the God who has saved them, worshiping the God who delivered them. And that excitement and that praise and that worship builds up into this incredible moment where they are glorifying God and that lasts for about three days. Because the Bible says that as they travel and as they leave the Red Sea, that somebody notices that they forgot to pack any water. And as they travel, they don't come to any water. And the excitement and the praise begins to transform into worry and panic and fear. How are we going to survive? How are we going to take care of our livestock? How are we going to take care of our children? How can we go forward? And finally, the Bible says they come to a place called Mara in verse number 22. And there's some water at Mara and somebody tries to drink the water. But as soon as they do, they realize that this water is toxic. It's brackish. It's poisonous. That if they drink this water, it's going to kill them off quicker than dying of thirst. And so now they are in full-blown terror coming to Moses saying, Now what? You brought us out here. What are you and what are your God going to do for us? And as I think about Exodus chapter 15 from start to finish, I just want to tell you all that there may be no better picture in all of the Bible as to what it really looks like to walk with Jesus that it can very quickly move from praise and worship to fear and panic, can't it? Now, sometimes we have it in our head that our journey to heaven is just, you know, kind of walking this simple straight path up a gentle incline with a cool breeze blowing at our face. When the truth of the matter is that walking with the Lord, there are setbacks, there are roadblocks, there are obstacles, there are potholes. Our God will take us the long way. Our God will take us the back way. And our God will take us the hard way. And we need to be prepared for God to do that in us or it's going to put us right where the Israelites were thinking, God, why are you doing this to me? Well, why is God doing this to them? Why doesn't God just make it easy for us? Well, I think if we read verse 25 and 26 of Exodus 15, we get a glimpse into why God is allowing this to happen. The Bible says that after they come to Mara, they can't drink the water, God tells Moses, take that log over there. Throw the log into the bitter waters, and the waters will become sweet. They will become drinkable. Then the Lord says in verse 25 that uh, the Lord makes a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So why all the fuss at Mark? The reason for all the fuss is because God is testing his people. He is in this moment proving the nature and the character of their faith and proving the nature and the character of his faithfulness to them. 
And I want to go ahead and just tell you up front today, lest there be any confusion, the Bible says to us over and over again that we should expect the same kind of treatment by the Lord in our lives. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter number 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though that is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The day that I prepared this sermon, I lost my wedding band. And what had, what had happened was, come to find out, it had fallen off when I was taking uh, the PJs off one of the kids, and it had ended up in their laundry, and so it got washed and then came back out the dryer, and I grabbed it and put it back on. But I wear uh, one of these you know cheap silicone wedding bands that is worth like six bucks, if that. And it's basically worthless, except for you know the value it holds to me because it's a symbol of my commitment to my wife, right? And some of you guys maybe wear titanium bands, or some of you ladies maybe wear titanium bands. A lot of you wear gold bands. And you know a titanium band may be worth ten times more than my wedding ring, but uh, a gold band is going to be worth as much as a hundred or even more times more because it's more valuable, right? But not all gold has the same kind of value. Because not every kind of gold has the same level of purity. That's what we're talking about when we talk about gold in terms of carrots. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you all this, and this is going to help your marriage. So this is some free free advice from Brother Jesse. That if you talk about 10-carat gold or 12-carat gold or whatever, that is gold that needs or could be purified further. And then as it becomes 14-carat gold, and then it becomes 18-carat gold, you get into the good, real expensive stuff that none of us can afford. What they're doing is they're taking that gold and they're burning out the alloys. They're burning out the impurities in that gold, making it more pure. What God is doing in Exodus 15, what God is doing in the circumstances of our lives, God is putting us sometimes in the furnace of testing and trial to burn out the afflict, to burn out the alloy, to burn out the impurity, so that you and I have the kind of faith that He deserves. God intentionally leads us into situations where we have to trust in Him so that He will prove His faithfulness to us. James says the same thing in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I just want you to know, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter how hard of a time you're having trusting in the Lord, no matter how complicated the path of your life might seem right now, please know that God is serious about making you live by faith. He means that. He will continually put us in situations where we have no choice but to trust in Him so that He proves we can trust in Him no matter what. And He does that. He says there in Exodus 15, 26, He does that so that we will be blessed in trusting Him. So that he, we will be blessed in following Him and resting in Him doing what only He can do. Now what fascinates me though about Exodus 15, y'all, is that it begins with this hymn of praise and worship because God has brought them through the Red Sea. And it ends with God providing in this moment where their faith seems to be so weak when they're tested. And I think about the story of the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. And here they stand with the Red Sea in front of them. It's impassable. There's no way forward. And you remember, the armies of Egypt are behind them. Pharaoh is breathing down their necks. What are they going to do? And what do they do? They complain. And they gripe. 
They were Jews, but they were also Baptists. And so they gripe and complain and say, there's no way for us to go forward. And God speaks through Moses. And what does Moses say to the people? He says to them, stand still and see the salvation of God. Moses says, don't just do something. Stand there and let God fight this battle on your behalf. And they trust in the Lord and God delivers. And now in Exodus 15, they're in another situation where they have to do the exact same thing. Where they have to just trust in God that He is going to take care of them, rest in God's power and not their own, trust in His wisdom and not their own, and say, God, you do what we are unable to do. You do realize that no matter how long we walk with the Lord, no matter how many years we follow Him, that we never move on from learning that lesson. That God is continually bringing us back to the place where we learn what we learned the moment we first put our faith in Him. And that is we are weak and He is strong. That we have nothing to offer Him and we have to receive everything as an act of grace. That we have to trust in Him completely. God is continually bringing us back to that place and proving that He can be trusted no matter what. True or false, God can be trusted. True. Here's the second question. Chapter 16. True or false, God will provide. You say, well, that's easy. Of course God's going to provide for me. My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory. Sure. But again, that's easy until you actually need Him to provide, right? And in chapter 16, the people of Israel are going to need Him to provide. The Bible says they move away Verse 27, then in verse 1 of chapter 16, they move away from the oasis of Elim and they move into the wilderness around Mount Sinai. And when they get to Mount Sinai, they realize that, man, not only did we forgot to forget to bring any food, we forgot to bring any water, we forgot to bring any food. And so through all these chapters, they're mad at Moses and Aaron. They ought to be mad at whoever packed for this trip. Because they did a terrible job. But now they're out of food. And now they're going to complain. And they come to Moses and they say, why did you bring us out here to kill us? And, and so they begin to gripe again to Moses. And I think in their complaint, we understand why they needed to be in this situation. And why you and I need to be in these situations in life where we need God to build our faith. And it's in verse number 2 and 3. So let's look at Exodus 16, 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So, in their fear and in their frustration, the people of Israel, here's their argument to Moses. It would have been better off for God to kill us in Egypt than for us to follow you so you could bring us out here and let us starve to death. That's their argument. But here's the thought. Their confusion is over who's leading them. It was never Moses and Aaron's idea to bring them out of Egypt, was it? It was God and His power that brought them out of Egypt. It was God and His covenant faithfulness to keep the promises that He had made that rescued them from Egypt. It was God's grace loving on His children that brought them out of Egypt. Why are they in this situation? Why do they need this situation? So they can remember who's leading them. And folks, I'm just going to be honest with you. A lot of times we forget who's leading us. We forget that the God who holds us in the palm of His hand is the God who reaches out and measures the stars with His faith. We forget that the God who is taking care of us is the God who loved us even in the death itself at the cross. We forget that the God who is leading us is the God who has all wisdom and all power in heaven and in earth. And God puts us in situations to remind us 
hey, this is who we belong to. In fact, he says that to the people. Beginning in verse number four, listen, I'm going to rain bread down on you so that you will remember it is the Lord, verse number six, who brought you out of Egypt. Let me remind you, God says, I'm going to use this situation to remind you of who you belong to. And God does. And what God does to remind them of who he is, is he says, I'm going to provide quail for you to eat for supper. And then I'm going to provide manna for you to eat every day. I'm going to provide this special miraculous food from heaven. God is faithful, verse 6 and verse number 13, to provide for his people. He provided some kind of supernatural, miraculous bread from heaven every day that the people of Israel were in the wilderness. He fed two million people every morning for 40 years. It's like 200 boxcar loads worth of groceries that he just made appear out in front of them. You know what that tells me today? That tells me that we serve a God that will move heaven and earth to provide for his children. In fact, the Bible says... Whatever manna is, whatever manna is, and the Hebrew word manna literally means what is it. And so they got up that first morning, and they looked out and went out and took a look and said, what is it? And it stuck. And, and so that's what they had. What is it? And people have tried to figure out what manna is ever since. Personally, I think it was Krispy Kreme donuts. But they've been trying to figure out what manna actually was. And the Bible doesn't say, and I think it's a supernatural one-time thing that they got to experience and nobody else will. But the Bible does say this about this experience in Psalm chapter 78, verse 25. It says that God fed the people of Israel. He fed them angels' food. I want you to hear me today. The Bible says that God will make the angels go hungry to take care of you. He will provide for His people no matter the cost. And every day these people got up and while they handled manna and did not know what it was, what it was was tangible proof that God would provide. It was proof they could hold in their hand and put in their mouth and put on their table that God will take care of His people. So every day for 40 years they had manna pudding and manna nut bread and manna milkshakes and peanut butter and manna sandwiches because God blessed His people. But one of the things I love about this story is that whatever the manna was, that somehow in the recipe itself, it was designed that it was only good one day at a time. And we didn't read this, but you can read it in verses 13 through 21, that God tells the people that when you get up, you get what you need for that day. And if you get any extra, he says it'll rot. And it did for some people who were disobedient to the Lord. God wanted his people to get up and experience a new miracle every single day. Trusting God in that day, for the needs of that day, knowing that God will provide for whatever they might need. And that is such an important lesson to us to learn. Because spiritually we get so confused. And the reason sometimes we fall into so much worry and so much panic and so much anxiety is because we try and cram the next six months into today, right? I was guilty of this just this week. The Lord knew I was going to preach this, and this is why I guess the Lord let me live it. But... Friday, yeah, Friday night, about 11.30, Asa woke up crying. And he lost his pacifier, and so I got him plugged back in and got his little stuffed animal ready to go, and he went right back to sleep instantly. But when I went back to bed, I could not sleep. Could not go back to sleep. My mind was racing about a million different things. And from 12 o'clock or thereabouts Saturday morning to 2 o'clock Saturday morning, I lived six months. You ever done that? 
some of y'all have been here today, and just while you've been at church for the past hour, so you've already worked 40 hours at your job next week, haven't you? You've worried about the next 90 days. And you thought, what's going to happen when I have to go back to the doctor and I have that next scan? What if my kids do this? Then that's going to happen. Or what if the school system does that? Or what if the government this? Or what if they don't that? And we constantly live worried about and anxious about the future, right? And so God says to these people, you get up and you trust me today and I'll take care of you today. And folks, I don't think it's any accident that when Jesus was in this world and he taught us to pray, he said, you pray for God to give you your daily bread. He has to be thinking about this, doesn't he? He has to be reorienting us and telling us, listen, you were not designed to live six months at a time in 24 hours. You were not wired up to live 90 days today. God made you to live today today. And God is going to take care of you today. And I don't know if it's ever dawned on you or not, but some of you are here today wondering if God is going to provide for your needs. And the only reason you are sitting here today alive is because God has provided for you literally every day of your life up to this point. God has given you every single thing that you need to get you right where you are. And He's going to do it today. And when tomorrow becomes today, He will give you what you need tomorrow when tomorrow is today. Now, all of that is true. But it wasn't true one day a week. Because on the Sabbath, God intended His people to rest. And so He said the day before the Sabbath, you get twice what you need, and there won't be any manner to come on the Sabbath because God did not want His people to work. He wanted them to rest. And we'll talk, Lord willing, maybe a little bit more about the Sabbath next Sunday morning as we look at the Ten Commandments. But I think this is important for a couple reasons. I think one reason it's so important is because these are people that had lived their lives up to this point as slaves, which meant they existed to work, right? They, they, they were little more than machines, they were little more than appliances or animals. In a world before tractors and equipment, these people were the tractors and equipment. They did the earth moving and the heavy lifting. And that's why God hates slavery, because it takes a human being made in the image of God and reduces them to a tool. It devalues them and devalues God. And these people have lived through every bit of that. They existed to work. But now God is saying to them, listen, I'm a different kind of king. I'm not like Pharaoh. I don't need you to work for me. I'm going to work for you. That's the whole point. And so God is saying to them and to us, rest. Rest in my power to provide for you. Rest in my ability to take care of you. I can meet your needs even if you don't get out of bed. That's what God's saying. God's saying, I don't need all of your worry. I don't need your strength. I don't need your frenetic energy. I just need you to rest in my power working on your behalf. And the Bible tells us that over and over again, I think so frequently of Psalm 127 too, where the Bible says that it is vain to rise up early. I get convicted when I read that because I'm a morning person. It's vain to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The other night when I was tossing and turning and worried and couldn't sleep, there was no need for me and God both to be awake, was there? No need at all because he's got it well in hand. Sometimes the best thing we can do is simply rest knowing that God's got it. So go home, eat your big lunch, and go take a nap for the glory of God. Because God's got whatever you're worried about. He's going to take care of. But you can't really read the passage from Exodus 16 without thinking about Jesus' words in John 6, where He says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse number 30, people come to Jesus and they ask Him there, oh, what kind of sign are you going to give us and prove that you really are sent from God? And they tell Him in verse number 31, 
Look, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, because they didn't get it, verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. But then Jesus says in verse number 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, I am the true manna, provided from God to take care of people who are starving to death spiritually. And I can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And we need to be reminded of that today. I think it's good to remember that we were not made for this world. We were made by something bigger than this world, and there's nothing in this world that will ever satisfy us. The only thing that will ever satisfy our souls is the God who made us and who made this world and who walked in this world to take us to His world. That's the only thing that will ever satisfy us. But is it not true that for some of us that know Jesus, we struggle to believe He's enough, don't we? And so, I think so many times in life, man, the struggle almost always comes down to a struggle to believe that God will take care of us in Jesus. It really is the struggle to believe that if God has provided for all of my needs in Jesus, then He's provided everything that I need. This is the pass-fail question of the Christian life. Is Jesus enough? We sang about it a moment ago, but God doesn't just want you to sing it. He wants you to live it. He wants you to know it. He wants you to trust it. That if God has provided Jesus for you in your sins, He will take care of you no matter what. Say, so why, why do you say that? Here's why. Because God has nothing more to give His children than Jesus. And God will never give them any less. The Bible says to us in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 32, and you should memorize this verse, that He that spared not His own Son for us, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him also freely give us all things? God has, in Jesus, already given the greatest treasure that, that He has to give to meet our greatest need. Is God really going to let me down now? If I can look to the cross of the Lord Jesus and know that God provided Him for me, is God somehow going to fail to take care of me now? Is God somehow going to let me down? Is God not going to provide True or false, God will provide. True. And God wants us to live in such a way that we understand He already has. He's already met the greatest needs of my soul. But there's one more test. And so there's one more question. True or false, God is with me. Chapter 17, the people of Israel, their belly's full of manna. They move out of the wilderness around Mount Sinai and they come to Rephidim, and ironically the word Rephidim means rest. But their experience in Rephidim was anything but restful because they run into the same problem that they had back in chapter 15. They don't have any water to drink. What are we going to do, man? And so they start to complain to Moses. Look, here you are. You brought us out here to kill us. We told you two chapters ago, and we told you the chapter before that, that you brought us out here just to kill us. You getting tired of these people yet? I am. They're complaining. They're grumbling. They're frustrated. But it's interesting that Moses says in verse number 2 that their complaint to him was really their putting God to the test. The Bible says in Exodus 17 too, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. 
Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? I want to warn you about the same tendency that you have in your heart, that I have in my heart, and that is to want to give God a grade, to put Him to the test, and say, Lord, you know, when it came to saving me, you know, that's a a B plus, that's a passing grade. You did pretty good. But when it comes to how you're taking care of me now, where my job's at, where my family's at, where the direction of my life is going, where my personal happiness meter is at, God, that's a D. You're just not getting the material. God, you can do a lot better. You can try a little bit harder. You need to bring that grade up because it's just not good enough. But all of these stories in the Bible are here to show us, folks, God doesn't need to be tested. God needs to be trusted. He does not live for your grade. But He lives to prove His faithfulness to us even when we struggle to believe He is with us. And that was the real dilemma that the people had in Exodus 17. God says so in verse number 7. Verse 7 says that Moses calls the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, here's the test, is the Lord among us or not? The people of Israel looked at God and said, we're supposed to be your chosen people. You're supposed to be leading us and taking care of us, providing for us. You're supposed to care so much about us. Where are you at when we need you? Where are you at when I need water to drink? Where are you at when I have a need right in front of me that you seem not to be needing? You ever been there? You ever thought, if God loves me so much, why am I going through this? If God loves me so much, why did my family break apart? If God loves me so much, why do I keep running my head in the same walls of frustration? If God loves me so much, why do I seem to be so unhappy? Have you ever been there? These people are there. Why are they there? Same reason we get there, because we judge God's goodness and presence by our needs, and not by His promises, and not by His provision. But here's the amazing thing about Exodus 17. God is faithful. God comes to Moses, and He says, here's how we're going to provide water this time. You see that big rock over there? He says, take your staff, go and strike the rock, and out of that rock, I will provide water to drink for my people. So here, all the people had to offer God was doubt, and unbelief, and yet God blesses them in spite of that. That's an incredible concept because God responds to faith that they do not have to give them the faith that they needed. And if you would look back over the course of your life, you could see God working in you and for you to see that God has been doing exactly the same thing for you, has How many times has God responded to faith that you did not have to give you faith in Him that you needed? And Paul says that ultimately, all of this happening in Exodus 17, this is another picture of how God saves us in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, Paul says in verse number 4 that all the people of Israel, he says that they drink from this rock that followed them, and he says that rock was Christ. Say, Paul, How in the world do you figure this rock represents Jesus? Here's why. Because these people complained. They doubted God's goodness. They did not trust Him. They did not want to follow Him. They did not want to obey them. But the blow of God's anger did not come on them. It came on a substitute so that the blessings of God would come on people who did not deserve it. And folks, that is exactly... We're good. That is exactly... How God saves us in Jesus. 
God saves us in Jesus by taking the blow and the punishment that should be on us because of our unbelief and transfers it to Jesus so that the blessings that should go to Jesus come to us from Christ. And what the Bible is pointing us to see and helping us to understand is that God is a good God who blesses people even when they do not deserve it. And God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God has given us the blessings of Jesus' love and His righteousness and His grace and His mercy all in exchange for our sins. And if God has given me all of His goodness in exchange for my sins, then I ought to be able to trust that God is going to be good to me no matter what. I ought to be able to trust no matter what I'm facing in life that God is going to take care of me. And so watch God up to in Exodus 17. I'll tell you what He's doing. He's reorienting the people to understand His grace. Here's what I mean. The reason we complain, the reason we grumble, the reason we gripe and lose faith and become so discouraged and so frustrated is because we look at our lives and we look at God and we say, God is not giving me what He owes me. God is not giving me what I deserve. I go to church. I pay my tithes. I taught in Bible school for 70 summers in a row. I have done my part. And yet now I've been diagnosed with cancer. And yet my children that I raised in church don't come to church with me anymore. Now my job has been shipped off overseas somewhere. I've done my part and God has treated me so bad in spite of how good I have been. Folks, we should look to the cross that this story points us to and we should realize, thank God He has not given us what we deserve. He's given us far better than we deserve. In exchange for our sins, He's given us grace. In exchange for my past, God has given me Jesus' future. Think about that. And if God has done that, then that should break me from this cycle of self-righteousness where I'm always complaining because God isn't giving me what I deserve. God has been far better to me than I deserve. And God puts us in situations in life where He will bring us back to His grace. Nobody likes being tested, do they? Nobody likes being evaluated, seeing how well we measure up, seeing how well we're doing. But I'm sure that God is doing that in some of your lives right now. I can sense in some ways that God is doing it in my life. And to be honest with you, it feels like most of the time I'm taking the same test over and over again and I keep bawling them over and over again. But God is gracious to bless us even when we fail those tests. But I wonder right now how many of you maybe truly are discouraged, frustrated, and down. Because God is taking you in a place you never would have imagined that He's taking you. And it's causing you to doubt. It's causing you to be frustrated. Maybe right now you are like I was talking about a little while ago. You know, you, you have analyzed the next six months. Worrying, fretting, wondering, trying to fix everything and hold it all together. And you're worn out and you just need to rest knowing that God is going to take care of you. As we stand together today, here's here's what I'm going to do. Is our musicians come and get ready to give our invitation? I want everybody, if you would, just bow your head and close your eyes. I don't want, I don't want anybody looking around right now. I know with I, I know most of us as Christians in the South, we are kind of conditioned to think about an altar call as soon as the sermon is over. I get that, but I also know that with the coronavirus, maybe we're nervous about coming to the altar and having somebody, you know. Uh, pray for us, breathe on us. So what I'm going to ask you to do 
the Lord's working in your life right now, I'm going to ask you just to make you a little altar right there in your seat. Make you a little sanctuary right there where you are. And go to the Lord. Get on your knees if you have to. And reach out to Him and say, Lord, you know the struggles I'm having. You know the doubts I'm facing. Lord, I bring them to you. Prove yourself faithful. Forgive me for not trusting But before we pray, I want to ask you some questions. How many of you right now just would raise your hand and would say, Brother Jesse, I feel so much like I'm being tested. I feel as if God has put me to the test right now in my life. And I see four or five hands going up right now. You can put your hands down. How many of you feel like you're trying to cram all the worries and problems and potential issues of the next 90 days into the day? Struggling to believe God's going to provide for you right now. I see your hand, buddy. I see your hand. How many of you right now are at a place where you say, I am tired and I want to rest knowing that God doesn't need me to work for Him. He works for me. And I want to just rest in what He's going to do. How many of you would raise your hands right now and say that? I see your hands. I'm going to ask you again, just right there where you are, pour your heart out to God and say, God, I'm not coming to you to complain, but I'm coming to you to say, God, Fight this battle on my behalf. God, do the impossible for me. I trust in you. Prove yourself faithful. Let me pray for you right now. God, you know the deepest struggles in our heart. God, you know where exactly you are applying pressure and where you are testing us to make us into the people that you have designed for us to be. You are doing that, Lord. I know in this body right now. You're doing it in my life in certain ways right now. Lord, I don't want to fail these tests. I want to trust in you, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard. And God, I know you're faithful to me no matter what. So Lord, help me to trust you. Do that, Lord, in all of our hearts. For those that are worried and anxious about the future, help them to see that you are going to provide for them today and Lord, they can rest in that. Take our worry, take our fear, and let us rest in your power as you fight for us, as you rescue us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.